Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Is there a shady story behind Florida's new history curriculum? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. Again, purchase classes there. I've got a new class, Reading Andrew Jackson. If you use the coupon code JACKSON, you get $70 off. That's if you're listening to this in August of 2023. That's when you get the coupon. That's when you get the deal. And of course, if you're on my email list, you've already known about that. You've got the deal already there. So get on the email list. You get the deals. This will be the lowest price you ever get for that class. $70 off. Use the coupon code JACKSON. Get the deal. Reading Andrew Jackson. Just put the coupon code in at checkout. Or if you're on the email list, you get the link. Just go right to it. So it's a win-win. You get great content. You keep this podcast free of charge. And, uh, I mean, the classes there are awesome. If you like the podcast, you'll love McClanahan Academy. You can also, of course, support the show financially by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe that way. You can click on the super thanks button a little harder on this video if you're watching on YouTube. All those are great ways to keep this podcast going, keep the lights on. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Give that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Uh, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. That helps get more eyes and ears on the show. And again, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, well, we've heard, I talked about the Florida, new Florida history standards and the outrage over that in a previous podcast. And then, of course, there was an article uh, that uh, came out, and I, I took a week off. Let, let me just address that, uh, because I didn't talk about that earlier this week in the in the previous podcast, but... Had a week off, took a little vacation time. Uh, the podcast is going to be a little different from here on out. It'll be a little less, probably two to three times a week. But I do have the Essential Southern podcast. If you want to get me still four times, you can go to the Abbeville Institute and get the Essential Southern podcast. That will be going on weekly now. Uh, in order to do that, I had to trim back some other things. So this podcast will be two or three times a week instead of four times a week, which is still fine. You're still going to get me four times a week. Uh, but you just have to get the other one the Abbeville Institute podcast. So um, it's not that I'm going away. It's just that I had to reduce my schedule time and people have asked about that. So that's what's going on. I need a little time off, took a little vacation. But in that time, of course, an article came out about the Florida history standards and the Florida history curriculum. And I want to read a line in that. And then we're going to talk about where this is completely preposterous. And this has to do with the history wars, right? I mean, what we're seeing, what I talked about with Rome and Donald Trump is people have a complete misunderstanding of American history. They don't really know what analogies to use, and they don't really have an anchor in anything 
to make any kind of historical statements that are worth uh, their weight, right? So here's an, here's an example. And this came from uh, an article uh, at, um, I don't even know, I'm reading on a secondhand site. So I don't know where the article really was. I think it was the Daily Beast is where this appeared. It was the Daily Beast. The first sentence, okay, this is the first sentence of the article. Enraged members of Florida's original task force on African-American education say they were purposely kept in the dark about the state's new academic standards, which now include the wild revisionist claim that skills used during black enslavement provided personal benefit in a shady move, shady move that echoed plantation politics. Now, that statement shows you how, how ridiculous these people really are. I could say stupid, but it's they don't, they don't really know anything. To say this is a wild revisionist claim would be to ignore the fact that what we're getting in modern historical instruction when it comes to the issue of slavery and the all of that is actually the revisionist claim. It's the wild revisionist claim. Roots, 12 years a slave, at least the cinematic version of that. If you read the book, it's a little different. And what historians have said about that book back in the 80s when you could actually make statements about these things, 70s and 80s, which is completely different than what you're getting now. Or Django Unchained, all this stuff. That is the wild revisionism. That's the wild revisionism. What you're seeing from modern historians is the wild revisionism, not based on anything but emotion. And I'm going to give you an example of that, right? So this is somehow a wild revisionist claim that's based on plantation politics. In fact, plantation owners themselves did not like the amount of freedom, if you look at someone like James Henry Hammond, did not like the amount of freedom that mechanics and skilled laborers actually had. They tried to start clamping down on some of this stuff in the antebellum period because they recognized the actual statement being made here. It gave them personal benefit. So they thought this is creating a group of people who have more freedom than they should have. And they started trying to clamp down on it. Now, as plantations became much more self-sufficient again in the 1850s, as you started seeing some problems with worn-out cotton lands and other things, well, there was a push to have more self-sufficiency. Planters were spending a lot of money on skilled laborers when they already had people there that could do it, and they started looking back at their own slave populations to do this stuff. And, of course, these people did receive different kinds of financial benefits and other things. The skills that they had created a different class of people. This is not a Brian McClanahan wild revisionist claim. This is based on the two most important books written about slavery in the 1970s, right? 50 years ago. Not some wild revisionism of 2023. Not Florida history standards. They just made this stuff up. And it didn't echo plantation politics. Plantation owners didn't really talk about this stuff that much. And I, I mentioned this when I talked about this issue a couple weeks ago, right? Where I brought up Horace King in Alabama, who learned to be an engineer and build bridges and all these things while he was a slave. This is not something that's outrageous. In fact, what they've done is, well, the people that the Florida uh, show, these, some of these people were free and some of them, uh, you know, this, this, this story, these people don't, don't add up. Well, the evidence based on 
uh, economic research based on data in the 1970s shows that a large percentage of slaves actually were engaged in skilled occupations. And these skilled occupations did lead to more benefits. This is Fogel and Engerman. This is Time on the Cross. This is Eugene Genovese, Roll Jordan Roll. Now, neither of these individuals would ever promote or say that slavery was a good institution, and rightly so. But what they did is actually looked at the data. They looked at the evidence and said, this is what the evidence shows. Not some wild emotional claim, not something based on fantasy, as that's what we're getting now that passes for history of this, of this issue. We see, what, where that works politically is that you get, you get the victimization, you get outrage, you get, you get all this stuff. You get the ability to weaponize history if you create this emotional narrative, which is not based on fact. If you take the Fogel and Engerman and Genovese position, well, you start seeing more reconciliationist positions. Well, maybe some things, maybe we could actually have a, a, a history that's not uh, us against them. Maybe there's something more to this. It wouldn't allow for weaponization of history. It wouldn't allow for the history wars because you couldn't use it as a launching pad for tearing down monuments or renaming everything. You couldn't do it because it wouldn't work. Because what you don't have then are good guys and bad guys. It's what I talked about a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't work that way. So I'm just going to read to you. This comes straight out of Fogel and Engerman. This is not something I made up. This is Fogel and Engerman, Time on the Cross. If you haven't read that book, you need to go get it. Right? It's, it's right here. So this is chapter two, occupations and markets. Right? This is an economic look at, at slavery. And the thing is about this book, people that have read this book, I mean, I've, I've heard so many people say this. Once I read Fogel and Engerman, my whole perspective on things changed. Now, Fogel and Engerman were called out on Donahue and other things for being you know, bad people for writing this book. All they said was, we just looked at the evidence and this is what it said. They were they, There's a chapter in here, there's, and they, they lead off almost every chapter, but they, they answer this. They say, look, we're not trying to prove that this institution was beneficial or good. Uh, even though when you look at this and you look at what's happening here, these people did benefit from the skills that they had. Ultimately, long-term, they would. But we're not trying to say the institution is good. We're just showing you the data. He says, uh, they say, during the last three decades of the antebellum era, last three decades, so you're talking about 1830 to 1860, slaves were involved in virtually every aspect of Southern economic life, both rural and urban. Every aspect. They were not only tillers of the soil, but were fairly well represented in most of the skilled crafts. So see, the image you get in the current wild revisionism, which is the left's version, is that everyone just worked the plantation, they worked the field, they were beaten mercilessly all the time. They didn't have anything else. They just pulled, they just picked cotton, picked tobacco. That's all they did. That's not what the evidence actually shows. And when you start talking about this, well, that creates a question. It starts raising questions. Well, wait a second here. Why have I been told this other way? Why, why, is this, why have I been told this my whole life? What's going on here? What is the political motivation behind this? Well, we all know the answer to that. 
In the city of Charleston, for example, about 27% of the adult male slaves were skilled artisans. In several of the most important crafts of that city, including carpentry and masonry, slaves actually outnumbered the whites. Some bondsmen even ascended to do such professions as architecture and engineering. Well, how's that possible? This is a wild revisionist claim from 1974. (laughs) Nearly 50 years ago, 49 years ago, this wild revisionist claim was made. It's not wild revisionism. It's what the evidence has shown for 50 plus years. And people knew it all the time. This is something that was always discussed. It wasn't plantation politics. No, no, no. Plantation owners were scared of this kind of stuff because they recognized the amount of freedom that it actually created, the economic freedom. And these people had certain, they were released from certain things because of this economic muscle and because of the kind of of, uh, of muscle they would have in the labor negotiation. Of course, only a relatively small percentage of slaves, about 6%, lived in cities and towns of 1,000 or more persons. One should not, however, leap from this fact to the conclusion that the entry of slaves into skilled occupations was special to the urban setting and therefore atypical of those who lived in rural areas. So don't, don't mistake this. We know only 6% of slaves lived in cities, and 27% of of the skilled artisans in Charleston, one out of four, were slaves. Some were even architects and engineers. Don't think, though, that this didn't go on in the rural areas as well, because it did. The fact is that slaves also had a large share of the skilled jobs in the countryside. Indeed, on the large plantations, slaves actually predominated in the crafts and in the lower managerial ranks. To a surprising extent, Slaves held the top managerial posts. To a surprising, this is Fogel and Well, we didn't think this. We didn't think this before we started writing this book, but we're surprised about this. Well, of course, it makes sense. Within the agricultural sector, about 7% of the men held managerial posts, and 11.9% were skilled craftsmen, blacksmiths, carpenters, coopers. Another 7.4% were engaged in semi-skilled and domestic or quasi-domestic jobs, teamsters, coachmen, gardeners, stewards, and house servants. Occupational opportunity was more limited for women. About 80% of slave women labored in the fields. Virtually all of the 20% who were exempt from field tasks worked as house servants or in such quasi-domestic positions as seamstresses and nurses. Comparison of the skilled distribution of adult male Slaves, with with that of the adult males shortly after the Civil War, reveals the way in which slavery limited opportunity. The proportion of the labor force in the professional and managerial category is only one-fifth as large for slaves as it was for all males in 1870. So it did limit, right? There was a a pressure on this, right, from top. These people could have done more, but they were limited by the institution. That's not unusual to say. And the Florida history curriculum, as I went over, doesn't say anything but that. But it does talk about how there's some complexity in the institution. That's all the curriculum is trying to say. And that's all Fogel and Engerman are trying to get home. Hammer home. There's complexity in this institution. This was partly due to the fact that slaves were completely excluded from such choice professions as law, politics, and education. The main barrier to the entry of slaves into the top occupational category, however, was the exclusion of slaves from land ownership. 
for three quarters of all men in the managerial and professional classes in 1870 were landowning farmers. The exclusion of slaves from the top of the occupational pyramid pushed a larger proportion into the category of laborers. Laborers accounted for 73% of the male slaves in the labor force in 1850, but in 1870 only 49% of all males in the labor force were laborers. So there was, a, again, this did suppress things. But then Fogelinger may make this claim. While slavery clearly limited the opportunities of bondsmen to acquire skills, the fact remains that over 25% of males were managers, professionals, craftsmen, and semi-skilled workers. Thus, the common belief that all slaves were menial laborers is false. It's false. But that's what the wild revisionists today want you to believe. They were just all menial laborers, didn't really have any skills, nothing. Felgen and Angerman are saying that one out of four were actually something else. One out of four. Now, that's not too bad. That's not 50% or 75%. You're not going to have that in any society. One out of four were something else. Rather than being one undifferentiated mass, slave society produced a complex social hierarchy, which was closely related to the occupational pyramid. Closely related to the occupational pyramid. So it reflected, it mirrored in many ways what was going on in free society. Not the top top, but the rest of it, right? So slaves were blocked from the top professions. Eventually, when the war is over, they would be admitted to those top professions for a time. But in the rest of the pyramid, well, you had you, it, it was closely related to that what you had in free white society. It was out of this class of skilled workers that many of the leaders of the slave community arose. In normal times, slave managers and craftsmen led in establishing and enforcing codes of behavior in the slave quarters, as well as in shaping patterns of black culture. They also represented the slave community in negotiating various prerogatives with masters and in restraining the excesses of white overseers. This upper occupational stratum may have provided, as a number of historians have argued, a disproportionately large share of the leaders of, of protests, desertions, insurrections, and rebellions. So this idea that somehow this is echoing plantation politics is unfounded. In fact, plantation politics would try to suppress this class of people. As Genovese points out in Roll, Jordan, Roll, they were afraid of these people. So for a time, they did try to clamp down on this, but it didn't work. It didn't work long term, and it, it never really did work. You had to have these people. You had to have people that could do these jobs. Neglect of the fact that one that more than one of every five adult slaves held, held preferred occupational positions, which involved not only more interesting and less arduous labor, but also yielded substantially higher real incomes, has encouraged still yet another oversight. That is, the failure to recognize the existence of a flexible and exceedingly effective incentive system that operated within the framework of slavery. So the fact that we've ignored this shows that we've ignored the complexity of the system. The notion that slave owners relied on the lash alone to promote discipline and efficiency is a highly misleading myth. In slave as in free society, positive incentives in the form of material rewards were a powerful instrument of economic and social control. Although slavery restricted economic and social mobility for blacks, it did not eliminate it. So again, they're not saying that these, this was a rosy, you know, great thing, that free laborers, you had all the... 
No, it wasn't. There was suppression. There was certainly uh, you know, negative, but it was more complex. And that's all the Florida history standards are really trying to show you. It was more complex. It was more complex than just a simplistic version you get by watching television or by the emotional appeals that other people use. What is the point? What is the political point of creating this very simplistic view of slavery? Well, we know it. It's to create a victim culture, right? And when you have that, well, then there has to be, again, good guys and bad guys, oppressors and oppressed. And when you have that, and then you can... You can use that to your advantage politically. That's the whole point. It's not saying that some of these things didn't create negative outcomes for people. Of course they did. We know it. We know it. Uh, Race-based slavery did create negative outcomes. And the way that people perceived other people. This is, a, this is a fact. But it also would show you that there's some complexity in here. And that complexity is important. Because what Fulgan Airmen and Genovese have tried to do in both of these books is show that uh, there was a lot of hardworking people that rose to great heights even in the confines of the system. That's what they were trying to show, that slaves were not lazy and didn't do work and all these kind of things. The common uh, stereotypes that were provided, they actually were hardworking, enterprising people who did good work. And even though there was a system that suppressed them, they were still able to rise above that. The whole point of time on the cross is to, is to throw dirt on the notion that slavery produced lazy people, that slavery was ineffective and inefficient, that black people essentially in the 19th century didn't work hard. That was the myth that they're trying to show wasn't the case. It's a pro-African-American book. Look at all these things that people did even though they were suppressed, even though they were oppressed in so many ways. I mean, even though you had this system, they're still doing great things. And in some ways, if you teach the history of slavery that way, it creates a much different kind of environment. It's not victims and, and, and victimizers. It's not oppressed and oppressors. It's a complex system that had give and take, and there's a lot going on here. While the great majority of slaves were agricultural laborers, it is not true that these agriculturalists were engaged in only a very few highly repetitive tasks that involved no accumulation of skills. With the exception of entrepreneurial decisions regarding the allocation of resources among alternative uses and the marketing of crops and livestock, slaves engaged in the full range of agricultural activities. So they weren't engaged in marketing and how, what kind of crops you would grow. These included the planting, Raising and harvesting of virtually every type of crop, as well as animal husbandry, dairying, land improvement, use and maintenance of equipment and machinery, and the construction of buildings. Participation in a variety of activities was the rule rather than the exception. These people were smart. These people knew how to do things. These people were skilled. These people weren't just mindless brutes out there getting beat on every day because they didn't know anything. That's what Fogel and Eggerman are trying to show. These were people that had real, tangible things, skills, that they eventually could use later when they were freed. And they did. And I could go on. Uh, but this is the point of Fogel and Ingerman. Now, Genovese 
says the exact same thing. Uh, and Genovese actually puts this in a little more global perspective when he talks about it, which is interesting as well. He says, during the colonial period, the plantations of Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina hummed with the sounds of the blacksmith and the carpenter, the cooper and the stonemason, the miller and the shoemaker. The wealthier plantations resembled industrial villages, and substantial numbers of slaves acquired a high level of skill in a wide variety of trades. That is the wild revisionist claim from 1972, right? So this is what Genovese said in 1972, now 50 years ago. Now, Genovese is dead, and what I find remarkable about this and everything, and I've said this before, is how much of this stuff has come out since Genovese died. Why? Because there's no one of weight to challenge it. Wait a second here. This is this is Roll, Jordan, Roll. I was in the Barnes & Noble the other day. You can still buy this book right off the shelf at Barnes & Noble. It's right there. You can still pick it up and get it. It hasn't been suppressed. It's just that what we've got is a new history, actually a new wild revisionist history based on things like the 1619 Project and other things that's completely out of step with what has been known about history for years. That is the new wild revisionism. Indeed, writes Marcus W. Jernigan, it's hard to see how the 18th century plantation could have survived if the Negro slave had not made his important contributions as an artisan. Wow. So they actually, the plantation would not have survived without the skilled artisans on the plantation who did derive, as Genovese points out, some personal benefit from this in the way that they could carve out their own role on the plantation and the privileges and things they were given that were not allowed to other slaves. And of course, they would use these. There's a book, uh, Schweiniger, I think it's the, the, uh, the author, uh, Free Black Property Owners in the South. And it talks about after the war, how these people were able to negotiate and and, uh, and live in this society that certainly did have its issues, racial issues. There's no doubt about it. But how they were actually able to use these things to their advantage. And again, Horace King was that way too. And there's many others. He says, during the 19th century, the slaveholders boasted that they had civilized savage Africans and taught them skills and even how to do any work at all. That's a plantation politics. So this is where they're saying, well, this is where the plantation artists are. They... they they civilize these people. Genovese says, though, in truth, however, the West African peoples who filled the slave ships brought magnificent skills with them. Reports of mining and metalwork had originally prompted the Portuguese and other Europeans to probe the African coast. West African craftsmen and the production of hoes and farm tools, as well as in handicrafts, won the praise of Europeans. Throughout the Americas, the Africans displayed a high level of mechanical skill, where they, in, where they had the chance, and as in Cuba, they often came to dominate particular trades. If during the 19th century, Southern slave owners had to enlist white artisans to teach their slave traders, they only had themselves to blame. So this is where Genovese would actually work, uh, saying that, and some people have said this, well, this was all, you know, white slave owners taught these things. But as Genovese points out, some of these skills were already there, right? Skills, during the, skills used during this time had personal... Some of these skills were already there as they came over. Some skills were taught, though, over time. Uh, 
The alleged and I think actual decline of skills during the 19th century resulted from the South's growing dependence on northern manufacturers and from increasingly exclusionist policies enforced by hostile white labor in the towns. Although white mechanics could not succeed in driving the slaves and free Negroes out of the urban trades, their hostility did break and reverse black industrial progress. So it actually came, there was, there was a, again, Genovese's pointing out there was a backlash to this. It's not plantation politics. White people in the South were not happy about some of this. They recognized that skills that slaves had would create personal benefit and other things, and they were pushing back. So again, I don't want to keep laboring this point, but you can go out and get both of these books. They're both available anywhere you want. Time on the Cross, and they're, you know, Roll Jordan Roll. Here, I'll show you a picture of it. Roll Jordan Roll is still in print. You can still get it at Barnes & Noble. Time on the Cross, a little harder to get, but uh, you can still get that book as well. Um, and they're really good looks, complex looks at the institution of slavery and what it was in American society. And how these, this, these news stories, you know, black Republicans upset with Ron DeSantis, they're not going to support him. This is because they believe in a myth. A myth that's not based on the historical record. A myth that's based on emotion. And I get it. I understand. I understand why that myth would be popular, why that myth would be powerful politically. But the fact is, when you look at the historical record, it's much more complex. And historians know this. The ones that don't talk about it are being disingenuous, and they're doing it for political gain. That's the only reason to do it. In some ways, it's the worst kind of pandering. But as a historian, you have an obligation to say, look, here's the evidence. Let's seek to understand what's going on here. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of discussion about these things. There's a lot of, you know, how this works. And when the, when the evidence, as Fogelman and Genovese have pointed out, says this is what the institution was like, this is what the pushback was, you had white laborers not happy about these skilled artisans, so you saw a decline, and Genovese said, I think there was a decline the, until the 1850s, which he talks about later in the book. Then it started coming back again. There was a decline. You had these skilled artisans before slavery, that was there too. And then they had to essentially um, work with these things again because there was a decline. There was a lot of pride in these people. Again, they were allowed things like gambling and other free time that other slaves didn't have. They had money. Even when you had a hiring out system, slaves would get some of that money, as Genovese and Fogelnagerman have both pointed out in their books. It wasn't just 100% profit taken by the owner. Slaves did get money. They had special privileges out of this. So there was a lot going on here. A highly complex institution, as Fogelanderman has said, that deserves to be studied as that and not some simplistic political slogan, which is what we're getting now. And that leads to all kinds of problems in the great history wars we're facing in America. So that's why I wanted to talk about this. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. Mm -hmm.